Welcome to Light for the Journey, a podcast of Russell Memorial United Methodist Church. Each week, we open the scriptures in faith that the timeless truth of God will guide us as we seek to follow in the steps of Jesus. Who should Christians associate with? In American culture, we often say that if you hang out with the wrong people, they'll be a bad influence on you. This leads a lot of Christians to spend their time with other good, godly people. But that's not what Jesus did. In this week's message, Pastor David Cartwright looks at the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus to explore who Jesus spent time with and how that should affect our own actions today. As we go to our message today, let's open our hearts and minds to the truth that God would speak to us. Would you turn in your scripture to Luke chapter 19? We'll be reading there verses 1 through 10. The Gospel according to Luke, 19th chapter, verses 1 through 10. Hear now God's word. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything... I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious God, in these moments, capture our hearts and our minds. Grant the leading and the presence of your Holy Spirit that I would speak words of your truth, that they would be spoken in simplicity, with clarity, full of grace, that you would accomplish in our midst your good and perfect will. For every good thing we receive and experience now, God, we give you and only you the praise and the glory. In the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. For the past several weeks, we've been in this series of um, Sunday School Revisited, some of the more familiar narratives of the Scripture, and so far they've all been from the Old Testament. I have received a lot of kind comments, which I appreciate. I've had more fun doing this than I anticipated, and God has consistently given me some aha moments of visiting texts that probably like you I thought I knew quite well and yet when you look at them again there's always something to be seen and so we're going to turn now to um, some passages of the Gospels for today and for the next two weeks 
Uh, we, you can't get out of this without looking particularly at Jesus. Hopefully, even in the Old Testament, you've been able to see how, how Jesus and his life, how the cross always rises to the top, even in these Old Testament narratives. But now, particularly, maybe some key uh, passages that would be very familiar to us and probably stories that we would have been telling our children had they uh, been with us growing up in church. And so uh, today we come to this story, this narrative about a tax collector named Zacchaeus. Before we look at the text, I want to share a question with you. Uh, not too long ago, some of us uh, engaged in a study called Jesus Among Secular Gods. And every session of it included some homework in which we were invited to go out and talk with other people. And it, also, and it gave some questions that could be used to engage people who were not yet Christians those who might be skeptics, those who were searching. And, and probably the one question that, that really stuck in my mind the most was this, and I ask you that, this question today. If there is a God, what do you think he thinks of you? If there is a God, what do you think that he thinks of you? I find that to be a very good question that could be asked of really anybody. What do you think God thinks of you? I suspect that you could get a wide variety of responses to that. And I am confident that some of those responsive responses could be that God probably doesn't think very highly of me. God probably would not want anything to do with me. And I wonder if Zacchaeus might have fit that description. Someone who had come to a place in his life of thinking, he probably was convinced that there is a God, but for whatever reason, would have been surprised to find out that God deeply desired a relationship with him. We come to this text... And there are really three players here. You know, you, you, you don't know the players unless you have a program, so I'm going to give you the program by naming the players here. The first, obviously, is Zacchaeus. We are told nothing more than he is a chief tax collector and that he is rich. I, I want to be very modest in not pretending to know more about Zacchaeus than what the text tells us, and so we'll just leave it there. Zac Zacchaeus, as a chief tax collector would have had the reputation of any other tax collector. They would have been Jewish people who had aligned themselves with Rome by essentially doing Rome's work for them, by extracting taxes for Rome from the people. Uh, in doing so, many of them had a reputation of cheating, of extracting more taxes than what Rome would have demanded. The tax collectors uh, largely would have had some freedom to keep that, uh, that, you know, that extra off the top for themselves. And so when, when the text tells us that uh, Zacchaeus was wealthy, it probably wants to tell us that his wealth might have been gained by some less than honorable means. And it's clear by the text that Zacchaeus wouldn't have had a great reputation around town. So we know kind of what we need to know about Zacchaeus. Obviously, the other main character here is Jesus. What I want to point out about Jesus here is simply that 
if you read the Gospels, you find that whatever reaction Jesus gets from the crowds, it's usually a pretty powerful one. Whether it's a good reaction or a bad reaction, the one thing that Jesus seldom gets is a reaction that's modest, you know, kind of a, uh, you know, a little bit this way or a little bit that way. The crowds either really like him or they really despise him. They're really chasing after him or, they're just, or they've just turned away from him. Jesus usually gets a powerful response in whatever way he gets it. The third player here really is the crowd. We don't know their names, but we know that the crowd was there. The crowds were a finicky bunch. As I just said, they, they could be hot one moment for Jesus and cold the next. One, one minute, you know, he's doing miracles and they can't get enough of him. They're chasing him down. You know, that he comes to town and they're flocking after him. They're crowding around and so that he can't even move and the disciples are trying to move them away. Or they're turning away from him and leveling all kinds of accusations against him, which really kind of highlighted the last week of his life of, you know, when they're shouting, crucify him. So the crowds are kind of like one way or another. And really what we see from the crowds today is that they have trouble grasping what Jesus represents of God. Here he comes into town. He comes into this town called Jericho. Zacchaeus, uh, being who he was, a tax collector, probably wouldn't have uh, you know, been very popular being among the crowd, but also being not a very tall person. He wants to see Jesus, and so he runs ahead and climbs a tree. That probably doesn't seem too unusual to you and to me being 20th, 21st century Westerners. We might miss the fact that Zacchaeus, as a grown adult Jewish male, would have been violating social protocols in doing this. As a, as a grown man to be respected, not only should he not have been running, but climbing a tree? That's children's work. Respectable men don't climb trees. I will tell you also, men who don't want to injure themselves when they get older don't climb trees. But we, we ought to appreciate a little bit that what Zacchaeus is doing is kind of, he, he's laying aside those social norms because there's something more important that has come in his life. He, he is moved because Jesus has come to town. Something has caught his attention and he is responding to it. And the only way he knows to, to respond to it at first is that he wants to get in a place where he can get a better view, maybe, maybe hear a little bit better if Jesus has something to say. He wants to position himself so that he can have the best Jesus experience right there that he possibly can. And when Jesus calls him down, Jesus notices him and calls him down, the reaction of the crowd tells us that they don't understand what God is all about. Verse 7 says, you know, Jesus has called Zacchaeus, come down, uh, Zacchaeus has come down to, to be received gladly. Verse 7 says, When they saw it, meaning the crowds, they all began to grumble, saying, 
He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. The crowds would not have been surprised. In fact, they would have been expecting that Jesus is going to go to somebody's house today. They didn't get upset because he was going to somebody's house. They got upset because they were, he was going to his house. Of all the people that he could go and visit. And when, when the text says that he's going to be the guest in his house, it implies that that includes that, that intimate meal sharing that would have happened in the house, which in that culture would have been extremely powerful, a powerful sign of, of agreement of one accepting another there at the table. Jesus is going, is going to whose house? How could this respectable, godly man want to go to the house of a sinner? You see, they just don't grasp what God is all about. In this past week, I've been doing this Bible study of Tony Evans that Carol is leading for us. And in his message this week, in the previous week's Bible study, he used a phrase that I really thought was, uh, was good. And the phrase was, compassion with a standard. I like that, compassion with a standard. What he's saying is that we as Christians are called to be people who have that. We're called to be people who have compassion and to have a standard. Compassion with a standard. You hold those two things together, intention, together with one another. And that is the thing with which the crowd is struggling because they can't put those two things together. And even in our culture today, with, with Christianity trying to be Christians in the world, we often struggle because we, we think we can't put those two things together. We're called to be compassionate, and yet oftentimes the, the call to be compassionate, when we try to be compassionate, it's as if we're expected to lay aside any moral standard. You can't be compassionate and hold to any moral standard. You have to get rid of that to truly be compassionate. And then if you try to have a moral standard, you're accused of not being compassionate. How do you put those two things together? The mystery is that Jesus did it, and he did it masterfully. In the 1940s, a, a Scottish author by the name of James Stewart wrote a book called The Strong Name. Uh, as a side note, I would encourage you to maybe not go buy it from Amazon. Amazon, since it's out of print, says it has one copy of new, and it runs about 800-some dollars. Uh, well, I'm not paying that. One of my favorite apologists, Robbie Zacharias, is fond of a particular passage in that book. And I want to share that passage with you. I've shared it once before in a sermon. It's been a while, so I want to share it again. Uh, James Stewart writes this, and he's writing about the personhood of Jesus, how Jesus in his person, in his life, brings to us a clear picture of what the divine personhood truly is. And here, here's what he says. Of, of these contrasting things that Jesus pulls together, quote, 
He was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of men, yet he spoke of coming on the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out at his presence, and yet the little children loved to play with him and nestle in his arms. His presence at the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the presence of sunshine. No one was half so kind or compassionate to sinners, yet no one of us spoke such red-hot scorching words about sin. A bruised reed he would not break. His whole life was love, yet on one occasion he demanded of the Pharisees how they ever expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams and a seer of visions, yet for sheer stark reality he has all of the self-styled realists soundly beaten. He was the servant of all washing the disciples' feet, yet masterfully strode into the temple, and the hucksters and money changers fell over one another as they saw the fire blazing in his eyes. He saved others, yet at the end, himself, he did not save." End quote. This life and person of Jesus has these contrasts to it. And you might stand back in amazement and think, how in one person could you see all of these things that don't seem to fit together? Someone who has such a passion against sin and yet such a deep love for sinners who has such, such a, a, a motivation to stand for the highest of morality because that's the character of God, and yet can walk into the, into the midst of people who have been the most alienated from God by their own lifestyle and smile at them and say, I want to go have dinner with you. This person of Jesus brings together the, the full truth of God for us to see on display. Remember what the gospel writer John says, recorded in the first chapter in the 14th verse, where that familiar phrase comes, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he goes on to say, And we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Not just grace, not just truth, full of grace and truth. And we beheld that glory. When Jesus was spending his last night together with his disciples, recorded in the 14th chapter of John's Gospel, Philip said to him, just show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And Jesus responded to him and said, Philip, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. If you want to know what God is about, Look at the life of Jesus. If you have seen Him, you've seen the Father. You've seen grace, and you've seen truth. You've seen compassion, and you've seen a, a calling to the highest of moral standards. And the crowds have such a hard time putting these two things together. Turn with me, if you would, back just a few chapters to the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Luke. There's a passage here that resonates with the one that we just read. I want to walk through it with you. It's just a few verses. Start in the 28th verse, Luke chapter 7. Jesus has been 
the, the, the disciples of John the Baptist have been sent to Jesus. Jesus has been talking then to the crowds about John the Baptist. And he uh, begins in this passage by saying, uh, in verse 28, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Just... Think for a moment about, about what the writer is telling us. John's baptism was, was extremely specific. Preparing because the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. That was John's message. I mean, it's great. You know, you, you have one sermon, right? You just keep preaching it over again. Repent, repent, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's all John... And that's what his baptism was, baptism was about. And you have tax collectors and, and people who were labeled as sinners and, and people who probably thought that they were being alienated from God. They're responding to, John, to John's message. But the people who probably should have gotten it the best were not responding. They acknowledged God's justice, those who were responding to John's baptism. Jesus goes on in verse 31 and says, To what then shall I compare the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another, and they say, We played the flute for you, and, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children." It's a great picture. Jesus says, look, John and I both are godly people on God's mission for the kingdom of God. And yes, we're very different in our methods. John came, he was that stern man who spoke with the sharp prophetic voice, this wild-eyed, wild-haired guy in the wilderness calling people to be baptized and repent of their sins. And what did you say about him? He has a demon. You didn't respond to him. And yet I've come, given you the, op the opportunity to rejoice, and yet you won't. You accuse me. You accuse me. It's not a compliment when they say, Behold, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Two ways of righteousness. You don't like it that way, and you don't like it this way. You just won't respond, will you? They just don't understand how God pulls both of those facets together for the good of the kingdom of God. And actually, he does it in Jesus himself. Oh, by the way, before you go away from Luke chapter 7, look at what the very next verse says, verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. I love it. Jesus consistently responded to open-door invitations. 
at the house of a tax gatherer or at the house of a Pharisee. It didn't matter. When the door was open, Jesus went. Jesus responds to open doors. There's a verse out of the book of Revelation that is quite familiar in the life of the church. You've heard it time and again. You may not even recognize that it comes out of the book of Revelation. It's in the third chapter, the 20th verse, in which Christ sends a message to the church at Laodicea. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20 speaks. It's the voice of Jesus and says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You've heard this, right? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. Very often that verse is slightly misrepresented. It's not misquoted, but we miss the fact about to whom it's written. We often use that verse as if it is directed to those who are not Christians. We use it evangelistically. Those words were spoken to a church. To a church. To a church who, to whom Jesus, just a few verses before that, said, you don't know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And if you say to yourself, that doesn't sound very complimentary, you would be correct. It wasn't intended to be. Because Jesus' message to the church was, you think you're something, don't you? You don't understand that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And then just shortly after, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and dine with you and you with me. You see, it doesn't matter to whom it is spoken. Jesus responds to open doors. When Jesus passed through Jericho and he looked up in that sycamore tree, he did not just see a wee little man who ran ahead and climbed a tree. Now you'll be singing that the rest of the day, won't you? You've already been singing it, yep. I mean, he saw that. But the important thing that he saw was an open door. That man who had run ahead was an open door. And when Jesus sees an open door, he goes in. And that's why he said to Zac Zacchaeus, Come on down. You're the one. I'm going to your house today. The crowds couldn't understand why. But Jesus recognizes the heart that is ready to turn. And he was all over it. 
Zacchaeus responded. Let's let's think for a moment about what Zacchaeus did. I, I don't know if he heard the grumblings of the crowd, crowd or if he just kind of had a gut feeling what they might have been saying under their breath. But Zacchaeus responds. Verse 8 says, He stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Now I will tell you that as with so many other things in the Bible, there are people who read this different ways. Traditionally, we have said, you know, Zacchaeus was a cheat, stole, you know, he got his wealth by dishonest means. I will tell you personally, I don't see any reason to go from the traditional reading of that. However, there are people who read this this and say, no, actually it kind of looks like Zacchaeus was, he had broken that stereotype. Maybe he was an upright man all along and was just saying, you know, this is, I'm willing to do this. Okay, regardless, regardless of which way you want to see it, I think we could agree on this, that what Zacchaeus says to God, what Zacchaeus says to Jesus is, if there is anything out of line, I'm willing to make it right. If I have wronged anyone, even without realizing it, I'm willing to make it good. And you see, that, friends, is the fruit of repentance. We should never lose sight that the gospel message to us is one that asks for a change. Repentance, for, for us to be able to look at ourselves and realize that we need Jesus. John's song this morning was perfect for this message. He's the open door. He's looking for those who recognize their needs. Zacchaeus recognized that he needed God. The problem probably was that he thought God wouldn't want anything to do with him. And Jesus came along and changed that. He gave Zacchaeus hope. There was a spark. There was a glimmer. There was the possibility that I had misunderstood God. And I think Jesus had a huge smile on his face when he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, you come down. For I'm going to your house today. What do you think God thinks of you? What do you think God thinks of you? I don't know who is within the sound of my voice today. I see the people gathered in this room, but I have no idea who is or who will hear this. I suspect, though, that there are a number of people who may be quite like Zacchaeus that your answer to that question might be, I don't, think very God, I don't think God is very pleased with me. I don't think God would really want much to do with me. Maybe that's of their own contriving. Maybe that's because the people who go by the name of Jesus Christ have led them to believe God wouldn't want very much to do with them. And if that's the case, I'm deeply sorry. This righteous, holy man was sent by God 
to take the first step. Jesus always takes the first move. You might read this text and say, well, preacher, Zacchaeus is the one who ran ahead, right? Yes, but Jesus is the one who came to Jericho. I can imagine in my mind a conversation in heaven, a conversation between the Father and the Son. I can imagine the Father saying to the Son, just go down there and go to them. Go to their towns, go to their villages, walk among them, and see whose hearts respond to you. And when you find those people, go and have dinner with them and let them know how much I care about them. That was so much the power of Jesus' life and ministry that the outcasts, those who had been convinced that God would want, not want anything to do with them, suddenly found the deep, abiding love of God. And Zacchaeus reminds us of that. What does God think of you? He loves you so much that he sent a son to walk among you and to go to a cross and die for you so that you might be brought to him. Don't miss the chance to respond if this is your day. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, I don't know exactly what transpired in the heart and the mind of Zacchaeus so long ago, but I'm so glad that he was willing to lay aside whatever expectations the society might have put upon him to run ahead, to climb a tree, just so that he might catch a glimpse of our Lord. Oh, Father, how great it would be if we would respond the same way. God, it may be that for many of us, we feel the need to respond. And I pray, God, that you would help us to lay aside any inhibition, any barrier, God, just move it out of the way, that our hearts would open to you today, that Jesus would come in, that we might be able to respond to you, to be able to say, Lord, I'm willing to make right whatever was wrong. I'm willing to turn and turn from my ways to your ways. Father, I thank you for Jesus, for his willingness to come among us. And I pray, God, that our hearts would always be open, that we might know the blessedness of his nearness. Father, it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We're glad that you chose to spend this time with us in God's Word. You can catch our worship services online at www.rmumc.net. May the Lord grant you the light of His truth as you journey through this day.